Now, this morning we, um, we uh, took the bread and the wine together, and uh, I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, Paul's account of, of um, the, the Last Supper, uh, of the, uh, what Jesus said as he, as he uh, gave out the bread and the wine. I want to look now at Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, which is on page uh, 1048, and uh, I want to look actually just at a phrase in this passage, but I will read uh, the whole of the passage out, starting at verse 14. When the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be, who is going to do this. Now, I want to, to look at verse um, 19. And he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Which is given for you. Let's now pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we do ask you, Lord, that you will take familiar words, but Lord... Uh, give body and depth to them in our, in our minds, and Lord, uh, help us to appreciate the spiritual wonder of uh, what you have done for us. Uh, we pray, Lord, you will teach us, Lord, as we look into different portions of Scripture this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. This is my body, which is given for you, which is words that are repeated in most uh, celebrations of the Lord's Supper or uh, the breaking of bread week after week in churches up and down the land and in fact throughout the world the basic fact of the gospel my body given for you Um, my body suffering, torn Jesus was beaten whipped uh, spat on, crucified. This was given for you. Now, I've called the the talk the stand-in saviour, which may sound a bit banal expression, but actually I want to look at the, the, the meaning, the clear meaning that is in the New Testament for that expression, given for you. You see, a, a stand-in is, in the theatre for instance, is someone, when the main actor for various reasons, can't make the performance, someone has to go in their place and do, uh, and do uh, what's necessary. A stand-in, uh, in all kinds of different situations, take responsibility 
for that person that's not, that's not there and fulfills their responsibility. Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, stood in for us. On the day of judgment, the wrath of God will be poured out on all of those who are sinful people, who have broken God's laws, who have fallen short of, the, of the, the glory of God. Jesus Christ stood in my place, because I'm a sinner like that, and he took the pain, as, as we, we sang earlier, he took the wrath of God upon himself. He stood in the position, and in fact he was crucified in the position of a sinner, but specifically in our positions as, as uh, you know, weak and failing people. Now, if you, uh, if you have been a Christian for any time at all, you will know the, the phrases that are used. Christ our substitute. In fact, there's even a word, substitutionary atonement. You may have heard of it many times. He's our proxy. Uh, the, what does a proxy voter do? He takes some. He, he votes in that person's in that person's place. He stands in for the person. The person's not able to do it. He's our proxy, taking the punishment that we couldn't bear upon himself. And because Christ was not merely a man, if he was only a man, at best he could, he, he he might have might have in some sense been able to take the sins of another person upon himself. But not even that really. But because he was the infinite son of God who had taken humanity into himself and become a man, he was able to bear the infinite, he was able to bear an infinite weight of sin, but he didn't have to bear bear an infinite weight. He was able to bear the weight of sin of all of the people that that become his by calling upon him. Now, why is this important? (laughs) Well, it's absolutely central to the gospel. And it is, and it's been under attack for at least two centuries um, as the teaching of, of, of Christianity. And I think it's really important that we actually ourselves uh, think through uh, this teaching of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. Now, I'll tell you, I was provoked into this because uh, a Muslim friend gave me a YouTube video to watch and uh, naturally it was uh, trying to destroy biblical Christianity. Um, the man who was destroy, trying to destroy biblical Christianity was a, surprise, surprise, professor at Oxford um, of theology, naturally, uh, and one of the things he mentioned was uh, the idea that uh, the Bible doesn't contain a coherent view of redemption and salvation. There's all lots of different kinds of views. Now, this provoked me for various reasons, because nearly 60 years ago, I can remember as a 14-year-old boy, 59 years ago, reading a book in my school library called Objections to Christian Belief. It was a penguin book. And uh, guess what? It had professors of Oxford and Cambridge, well-known men. In fact, when I went up to Cambridge myself to read theology, some of the people that had written articles in this book were, were men that were lecturers there. And uh, they brought forward scores and scores of arguments against biblical Christianity. But one always stuck in my mind was one man said that the whole idea of Uh, of uh, Christ dying on the cross and someone thousands of years ago dying and somehow his death having an effect upon our relationship with God today seemed to this person to be uh, to to have no meaning at all now uh, that uh, reading of that book when I was 14 had a big big effect on my life it was one of the reasons why eventually I went up to read philosophy and theology at Cambridge Uh, but the uh, 
the, the ideas in this book, the doubts, the problems in this book, actually were, was, were quite big problems to me as a 14-year-old, 15-year-old, 16-year-old. I kept on, I used to have a well-thumbed uh, edition of this, of this paperback that I was reading, you know, from fairly regularly, trying to go through these questions that they were throwing at my simple Christian faith. And as I've said, uh, under, the, uh, under the providence of God, I got a chance uh, doing a degree, uh, a four-year degree, two years of philosophy, two years of theology, to examine uh, all of these objections to basic Christian faith. And the Lord enabled me to see that these objections were baseless. Um, but it, it caused me to, 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 to see, well, it really is important to look at this basic point in the Christian faith. Christ gave himself for us. He was our stand-in, our substitute. This is my body given for you, which is given for you. And uh, so I, I want to look at this. I'll just, just point out to begin with, there are different breeds of, of dogs and there are different breeds of non-believers. You know, there, there are straightforward atheists uh, who have all kinds of arguments why they think God doesn't exist. Uh, um, why is there suffering? God of love can't possibly exist. They have those things. Sometimes scientific objections and so on. But there are other kinds of non-believers, like this professor who I was listening to on YouTube, very nice chap, um, but who quite openly say that they do not believe in the God of the Bible. In fact, actually would say, well, I can't even identify the God of the Bible because there are so many different representations in different strands of people's teaching that we cannot truly identify uh, uh, this one particular being. And, and uh, these particular men feel that they can stand outside of biblical revelation and they can pick and choose, just like little Jack Horner sat in a corner eating his curds and whey. He put his hand into a pie and flicked out a plum and said, what a good boy am I? And these people think they can take the bits they like from the Bible and take the bits they like from the Quran or the Hindu scriptures and they can create a religion which appeals to modern man. Um, and of course, today we have people who are uh, wanting not just to appeal to modern man in terms of the, the vision of God, but also uh, in social mores, in laws, and so on. And often these very same people that pick out the bits they like in the Bible and leave out the bits they don't like are precisely the people except gay marriage and abortion and euthanasia and all of the, the progressive agenda uh, of, our, of the modern world. And they rise to be bishops. They certainly many hundreds of priests and vicars and pastors. Now we need to, to actually be clear that there are certain truths the Bible says that are absolutely important. Paul says at the beginning of Galatians, in the book that I read earlier, he says this that in Galatians 1 verse 7. Uh, you can look it up if you like or just listen. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if I, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be anathema. In other words, let him come under, uh, under God's curse. Let him, let him be excluded and, and, and uh, basically excluded to the outer darkness of hell. As we've said before to you, I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, 
Let him be accursed. Am I seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I, if I was trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me by me is not man's gospel. I didn't receive it from a man, nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now we can understand why many modern people might not like the tone of what Paul has said. But it's very difficult to understand why people who claim to be in the church can totally reject what Paul himself has said. But they, of course, do. We're told that Jesus said that he died for our sins on our account. And uh, we need to be, be quite clear that um, the Bible is, is uh, clear about the idea of substitution. People who are progress, so-called liberal progressives, self-titled uh, self, uh, uh, liberal progressives, dislike the whole idea of substitution salvation, that Christ stood in the place of sinners. They hate the idea of retribution, that there, that there should be a punishment that must fit the crime. They hate, they hate the idea that modern ideas of sexual morality are condemned by the Bible. But of course, people's preferences don't make them right. The key thing that every Christian has to do always is to be loyal to their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and go and, say, and, and see what Jesus taught. What did the early church disciples teach? And I just want to, to just firstly, to, to look at this, these very simple concepts to do with the gospel. Retribution, that is, that evil has to be punished. There is a cosmic, a, a universal law of the cosmos that God himself has established that sin and evil must be reacted to. And I also want to look at um, this very simple thing that Jesus has said, that um, he came into this world to die in our place as our substitute. Now, let's first look at this idea that, that sin is bound to be punished. You, you may know that um, for nearly a century, philosophers uh, dealing with punishment have basically said that you know, there are, there are, are different ways of, of dealing with uh, crime and guilt. Um, one is retribution, but they, some of them will say, oh, that's an old-fashioned idea. That's a, that goes back, to, uh, back into the Dark Ages. Uh, the modern person thinks more of deterrence, trying to stop people uh, doing evil, or uh, also of um, remedial action, redemption, by actually, uh, when uh, a criminal is, is, is dealt with, you're not thinking of punishing them so much as making them a better person. Now, undoubtedly, Christians down through the centuries have actually supported, in, 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 in one way or other, uh, those things. It is true that indeed there is a deterrent. Uh, uh, there is a deterrent uh, by giving punishments that can stop uh, um, evil people doing things if you make the punishment severe enough. And it's also true, uh, and this was true of the uh, of the 19th century Christian reformers that they also wanted people to uh, people to to go to if they went to prison, but also to be educated and 
turned into a better person. Learn how to work. And uh, not be simply, um, be simply destroyed by the punishment in prison. But all of the same, even though, even though those, there are aspects of truth, they are not the whole truth of punishment. Jesus taught clearly in his teaching that we are liable to judgment. Now, if you'd like to look over at Matthew 5, 21 to 22, which is a well-known passage in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see that Jesus teaches um, uh, the danger of, of hatred in the heart, and all of us here tonight are aware of Jesus' teaching on that, but we may not have noticed um, a phrase that Jesus, is, Jesus uses. Because in Matthew 5, uh, 21 and 22, and I'll read it in the English Standard Version, the church, um, the church version, it, uh, it says uh, this. You've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, this word enochos is defined as bound, under obligation, subject to, liable to. And uh, it has a kind of a technical sense of denoting the connection of a person with his crime. Um, and with the circumstances, the penalty, the trial, and those against whom he's offended. Now, Jesus, therefore, clearly is teaching, you know, in this passage, retribution. Which, of course, the, uh, the Old Testament prophets and uh, the New Testament apostles also believed in. When God's laws are transgressed, there is going to be a so, uh, uh, something that will be happening. They are something they are liable to. Okay, now that's the technical point. Now, I want to talk about us as human beings. Well, what are we liable to? Someone once said about the telescope, how wonderful the telescope was, but then how incredible uh, was the microscope. Um, a, a guy called Maya said this, the age which discovers the telescope with the infinite abyss above, also discovers the microscope with the infinite abyss beneath. And, uh, yeah, it's fantastic, isn't it? The, the marvels of the galaxies, but also the incredible nature of uh, subatomic particles. And not only that, you begin with bacteria, and then you go down further and see viruses. And then, of course, microscopes can't actually see atoms, but, uh, you know, as people delve further with mathematical equations and stuff, all of these, all of these, um, these things are discovered. But although human beings in the 21st century have the tremendous ability to examine the vastness above and the microcosm beneath, what scientists and everybody uh, mostly miss is the abyss, the darkness of the human soul. That every person has wandered away from God has an abyss within. It isn't just that people have just missed the glory of God and just break a few laws. The Bible makes it clear that the heart is deceitful above all things and there's a great ocean of evil within the heart of fallen men. Um, when I was 11, 
I, um, at school, we read uh, Dylan Thomas's uh, Under Milk Wood, famous Welsh playwright who died of drink, I'm afraid, when he was still quite young. But Under Milk Wood gives a picture of this darkness within in, in one or two of its characters. He, he has a, a couple that are married that have a very badly functioning marriage. I'll just read uh, a few comments. Mrs. Pugh is a very harsh, ill-natured, cold woman. Mr. Pugh secretly hates and despises his wife. He doesn't ever show it. I can remember as, as a kid being amazed at how, you know, he, he, uh, reading through the play, how he would always cover up this raging hatred that was within him. He's always plotting how to kill her, but he never actually does because he's a kind of, he wouldn't want to be punished and he, he, does, he wants to keep up the image of being a decent, civilized person. He's timid, but determined and always scheming, but he never wins. He hates Mrs. Pugh with a passion. And here's, a, here's how he fantasizes about killing his wife. Here's your arsenic, dear, and your weed killer biscuit. I've just throttled your budgerigar. I've spat in the vases that you've, that you've put out, and I've put your cheese in the mouse holes for the mouse mice to eat. Oh, here's your nice tea, dear. That's what he actually says. Here's your nice tea, dear. But all the time, he's thinking all of this ugliness. Now, of course, it was meant to be a, a kind of a tragic comedy. And we're not saying that all oh, people are like that all of the time openly. But I think it is true that this dysfunctional marriage in Undermilk Wood is a picture of the ungodliness of the human heart and the abyss of evil that actually lies within us. Because it is possible to have a form of godliness, but secretly hate and despise God. Oh, we're bowing and scraping before God. We're, uh, we, may, um, we may be very humble, but often this is to impress our neighbors. We might even, like many religious fanatics, die for our religion. But actually, that's it. We're, we're dying for our religion. We're dying because our religion is part of us. And we're hoping that somehow the unknown God that we don't really know will somehow uh, um, uh, you know, reward us for our sacrifice. So often people say, I'm a good person. But of course, when, when, uh, when stressed out, they come out with the most terrible hatreds. And the husband says to his wife, of course I love you, dear. But then he's plotting, working out when he can can go and see her, her best friend and have an affair with her. The Bible pictures the human heart as, as being a heart of darkness. And the ungodly person is actually an anti-God person. And he's hostile to God, not because this is a noble defiance of, 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 of a, a God who's trying to... to uh, Turn us into bigots and make us narrow-minded. No, no, it's not that at all. Our hearts are hostile to God because we have absorbed the mentality of the devil. That's what Jesus said to the Pharisees. You hate me because you're one of the devil's children who was a murderer from the beginning. That's why you hate me. And they were enraged when Jesus exposed their hostility to the love of Jesus Christ. And they and therefore vowed to kill him. We don't want to have him ruling over us. And when the crowds in Jerusalem 
shouted, we won't have this man to rule over us. And in fact, it was the Pharisees that stirred this up. Jesus could have abandoned his mission. He could have, he could have at that point uh, called for 12 legions of angels to come down and punish them all. But no, despite this incredible surge of hatred towards him, his response was love and kindness. I mean, it is incredible, isn't it? When Satan showed his hand, filled the hearts of, of the multitude, starting with Judas, but then filling more and more hearts with hatred for Jesus Christ. But as he was being crucified, he says, Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. My body given for you. My body given for you. He was paying a price. Now, it's important, though, we have to define what price was he paying. Because as I've said, uh, various theologians rather, uh, rather I would call semi-deceitfully, <laughs> basically try to say, yes, Jesus died for us, but he died to demonstrate his love for the world. And I say semi-deceitfully because, of course, it's half a truth. They mean to say that Jesus displayed the most amazing self-sacrifice and love. And that is what I've just been talking about. And that is wonderfully and marvelously true. But what they actually are not saying is what they mean is that this was a perfect man showing love and forgiveness for everybody as they should be because he was suffering and dying. But actually his suffering and dying did nothing to change our relationship with the living God. And that, that's a significant difference. The word that is sometimes used uh, by them is expiation. Jesus was an ex the expiation for our sin. Jesus' death on the cross was a result of the horrific hatred that is within mankind, hatred to their fellow men and hatred to a prophet. But his death did not actually do anything about the sin and the guilt in itself because it didn't need anything doing. Because these people don't believe in hell. They don't believe that there's an everlasting punishment upon people. And therefore, well, Jesus didn't need to die for the sins of, uh, of the people in that sense. What he needed to do was show this wonderful love so we can model our lives on him. So we can imitate him. And this is a very important difference. Because, of course, the Bible and all of the Bible authors make it quite clear that they believed that not only was Jesus a model for, for our lives, living a life of love, but he also dealt with sin. So could we look at 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 24 onwards, which actually, sorry, verse 22 onwards, which actually gives us both of these strands of teaching um, uh, and makes clear that both strands are important, not just our, us modeling our lives on Jesus' love, but also understanding that his death made a crucial difference to our eternal destination. So 1 Peter 2, uh, starting at verse 22, tells us this. In fact, we start at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So yeah, Jesus Christ has given us a model of self-sacrificing love. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. 
When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who just judges justly. So there we have this marvelous love of the Lord, which we see, which we ourselves as believers are to, are to model ourselves on. But then Peter says more. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter defines the work that Jesus did was through the motivation of his love. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. That his death was for us, our substitute, our stand-in, our proxy. Now, Jesus himself taught this. Not only in the Luke, uh, uh, the message, uh, sorry, the, the passage from Luke of the institution of the Last Supper, but also Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, a payment for many. And this is clearly linked to the teaching of the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse, verse 5 of Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions, for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. For you. Crushed for you. Pierced for you. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Whipped for me. Whipped for you. With his wounds we are healed. Verse, uh, second half of verse 6. The Lord laid on him the sin of us all. Now notice that all of this uh, talk of saying that Jesus was just given an example is semi-deceitful. Because it's half the truth. And only having half the truth, it turns into a, a terrible lie. The Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of, his, uh, uh, of us all. And now, Paul himself, uh, as well as Peter in the New Testament, uh, says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now this is one of the, uh, one of the uh, uh, documents, a very early document in the New Testament, but it, it harks right back to, to the time of Jesus himself. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, When I came to you, Corinthians... He was writing in 51, and he was talking about the year 49. I preached to you that which was of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And now, Paul says that he received this message when he first became a Christian. Well, that was within three years of the resurrection. So right from Paul's first, uh, first uh, uh, teaching of what it meant to be a Christian, Paul uh, had saw that, for our sins his body given for us and uh, in Galatians 3.13 Paul says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles and again the wonderful verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sins and in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, 
I've, I've made a various doctrinal points, which I think are, are, are fundamental to understand in terms of our preaching of the gospel today and also as we meet uh, those who put, put forward a brand of Christianity that is actually denying the gospel. Um, and I think these are important. But of course, we also need to unpack this for ourselves and meditate upon it and think about it. As the, indeed this morning, uh, during our communion service, we were, we were thinking about, about uh, and gave thanks to the Lord for his body broken for us, his, his blood poured out for us, the new, the new, uh, the new covenant. And uh, I would like us just to, just to um, think about, if this was poured out for us, what for? Christ loves, Christ loves controlled us. Why? We're convinced that, uh, you know, he died for us so that we should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. Again, through Corinthians. For him. So, if we could summarize the gospel by saying, for us, his body given for us. Why? So that we should be given to him. And our lives should be given for him. And to his glory. And to live in his love. And to share his love with others. As with Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Now, um, may the Lord uh, you know, help our meditations upon this um, to be rich um, uh, this evening. And perhaps in this coming week.